Listener Production. Reese Nicholson is one of Australia's greatest comedians, entertainers, and truth tellers. Reese has not only entertained audiences, but also challenged societal norms and sparked conversations that transcend the confines of the stage. Reese models how it's possible to have the scars of life and through self work and comedy rise above them. Today's conversation centres on the way we can all become more embodied, connected to the core of our beings, and find direction in our intuition. Reese talks about how some of the obstacles have been detours in the right direction, dealing with anxiety, touring with Conan O'Brien, and being a bright voice in the LGBTQI community. Drag in Australia is a very particular thing, and I love being even a very small part of showing that to the rest of the world, which sounds like a very press thing to say, but I genuinely mean that. The great part of it is that I get to sit next to RuPaul for three weeks of the year. I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Through my years of studying and researching the connection between human behaviour, personal growth and transformation, I have discovered the keys to unlocking greatness within others. In this podcast, I share stories and experiences from my own teachings, along with conversations with inspiring guests to help you learn the simple tips, habits, practices and strategies to cultivate an extraordinary existence. Reese Nicholson is the host of the Stan original series, RuPaul's Drag Race Down Under, season three, only on Stan. This is a very frank, honest, open and soul-bearing exchange, punctuated with belly-aching humour. We discuss vulnerability, authenticity, suffering and attachment, topics that have touched most people and families. My hope is that Reese's words awaken you to know that there is light out there, May we walk together on this path of healing to find it. Reese Nicholson, it's always good doing these face-to-face interviews and we were saying how much better long-form content is instead of short-form content. Yeah, we can actually like have a chat about things and get to the context of something here instead of just like, um, I have a book and drag race (laughs) and stand up. Bye, good to see you. (laughs) Well, you know, my thing was I was a radio producer for many years Uh, and I used to sit there and I'd think they can ask one or two questions and that's it, that's the end of the break. And I always felt like the more kind of, especially like breakfast radio I've done over the years, it's always like... You'll get a call the day before. It's like, we're thinking of playing a game. Where yeah. this, and you're like, Jesus Christ, like, can't we just talk? And you you, you like you realise there's like a drum beat playing under you as you talk and there's like a lot of a lot of product chat. Like, I don't know, it's just a very different... I come from like a, a more ABC world as well. Yes. And I'm... They kind of... It forces you to be a little bit more careful about what you say. Like, you know, I work on a show called The Weekly on the ABC and I've gone from being a stand-up where... I can say whatever I want because I'm speaking only for myself and then you're on the weekly and I want to say, like, let's say some grim shit about the Catholic Church <laughs> and then they have to be like, we agree with you, but we can't... With, with You're speaking for a national broadcaster yes. and you're being paid by taxes. Like, that's a wild thing to... And then you go on commercial radio and even I get scared to say, like, Coca-Cola, and then you're suddenly like, no, I can say whatever I want here, can't I? Because you can't say brands on the ABC, you know. Oh, can you say brands? You have to be really, you you kind of have to be like cola. Really? Or, yeah, because they can't be seen to be promoted. There's ways to get around it, yes. but you can't be seen, you can't be on Triple J as a presenter and be like. I didn't know that. So what if you had an Adidas top that said Adidas, like in big writing, could you wear that if they were filming you? I think, oh, I don't know. I think they would be a little iffy about it. Like, probably not. Like, and look, it depends. if you're like, you know, an Oscar winner, they'll probably be like, yeah, sure, okay. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, they, they get, I think you just have to be kind of careful. It's why, you, you know, I think it happened a lot more in the 90s and 2000s, but you ever see someone on TV wearing a cap and it had a piece of like gaff tape over the top of it? <laughs> you're like, I always used to think, like, why? What a cool statement they're making. He's like, no, that a, a, a runner put that on two seconds before they went on air. I know, it's so funny. And, What's interesting as well is like kind of what we were speaking about, which is the cancel culture. Yeah. I'd love to get your views on that because obviously we were saying in podcasting, it's long form content, so it's easier to talk about bits and pieces, but even then you do have to sometimes be careful. 
And I actually was just on tour with a guy called Peter Singer, who's a very well-known philosopher. Yeah, yeah. And I brought this question up to him when we're on the tour because he has some views that uh, seem to be out there. Yeah. But he says that now he's a very famous philosopher, he doesn't really get cancelled because he's on the scale of being so big, but he does worry about people who are not, who can't express their views yeah. in, of certain things because they're worried they're going to be cancelled. What do you think about that? I flip-flop around a lot about it because, you know, I work in comedy. I always think that the job of a comedian is not necessarily, to, you know, some people get really philosophical about it and go like, we're, the, we're there to comment on the on society and we're the, the jester. And I also think we're kind of just there to make you laugh and it's not really up to... Like, the, the, the transition of comedian into philosopher is very funny to me. The kind of, like, Ricky Gervais... Uh, who else kind of does it? John Cleese has kind of studied it. And usually it's kind of older, white, straight men. Yes. And and then when they kind of, you go after them about something, they'll be like, I'm being cancelled. You know who's not worrying about being cancelled? Queer people, women, <laughs> people of colour, because uh, we're just happy to have any kind of voice at all, to be honest. I, I personally, I think the way that I stand about it now, I do not believe in cancel culture. I think most of the time... Because if you look at the people that are claiming to have been cancelled, like the original, like I think in in my world, the biggest one was Louis C.K. Like yes, was the first yeah, big yeah. moment that's like he's been cancelled and we're all upset because he can't get work anymore. Well, he recently sold five, sold out five Madison Square Gardens and he's been mm. working consistently the whole time. He might not have a TV show anymore, <laughs> but he's fine. Yes, I think a lot of the time, cancel culture is again speaking broad generalizations, straight white men paying the ramifications for some sort of wrongdoing. Mm. I realise there is some situations where, yeah, we're in a culture where people are held up to account sometimes too highly for things, but I think most of the time, like, I, I can't actually, if you really press someone, I can't name or find someone who has been, like, whatever cancelled means, like, yeah. they've been completely obliterated from the universe. Yeah, never to come back again. I can't really think of anyone. I think there are horror stories where someone has been and this is more into kind of abused by the public to such a point that they get depressed or, you know, yeah. do horrible things to themselves. And usually that is women, people of colour or queer people. <laughs> There's a big thing about drag story time at the moment and uh, as soon as the library kind of releases the, the idea that, oh, we're going to have a drag queen who is going to be fully dressed and not on any kind of drugs, they're going to come and read a story in a bright costume to some kids. Yeah people lose their minds about it and think, like, it's grooming and it's... Like, that to me, that veers on cancellation is when you're looking at an entire culture and these are, like, strong words. Wow, we're really jumping in deep early on from the first question. <laughs> but um, I talked about it on the weekly once yeah. where there was people, like, threatening bomb threats against a library and... Really? And putting, yeah, and putting it under kind of... Uh, you know, I'm just doing the, I'm, I'm protecting the kids. And I was like, really? Because that sounds like terrorism to me. <laughs> like, and, you know, they're coming at it from a point of view of like a straight white parent trying to protect their kids. Have you ever said anything that you've, people have gone after you? Not properly. I don't think so. I, no, I, I'm not too, I, I think I think of myself as I like to be mischievous in my comedy, but I'm not, I don't think I'm articulate enough to know like I'm a I'm a pretty I'm a pretty smartish Seems pretty person. articulate to me. Yeah, but I'm not like I I would never. The, you know, I remember trying to read like speaking um, of like philosophers, like trying to you know being a, in my twenties, thinking like I'm going to read some philosophy and just being like I don't know what this is about. I don't understand <laughs> this. And I think it's like there's a responsibility to lend your voice to things that you think you can help in, yes. and to not lend your voice to other things. And I think I'm careful about like. You know, there are certain things I feel educated enough to talk about and there are things I do not and so I'm not going to add yeah. my voice because it just turns into a cacophony of things and why do I... And I think a lot of times it happens with people just like, especially on social media, like, this is my view on this thing. Mm. And then, you know, that turns into misinformation and that turns into... And they're not that voice isn't helping. I think we all in the media and in entertainment have a responsibility to lend our voice to things that we think can help and not. And I think there's a responsibility in not adding your voice to something that is not going to help. I agree with that. And also what I've learned over time is 
if you're going to add your voice to it, be educated on yes. it. Yes. So you're not just saying something and really not having much Can knowledge. Can't just shoot from the gut about like life issues. Yeah. <laughs> like, do you know what I mean? Like, yes. There are things you can totally like take your own lived experience and all you know hashtaggy words like that. But there are also things that are just like I don't know enough about that. I'll look into it. And, yeah. And I'll look on Snopes to make sure what I'm looking at is <laughs> exactly, right. Exactly. Exactly. So, Reese, mm. you grew up in Newcastle. I did. <laughs> How was that? It was, I make a lot of jokes in my act about Newcastle because I think everyone makes jokes about their hometown. I, I have a joke with this, um, I'll do the cleaner version of it because it's got quite a full-on word in it usually. I love my hometown the way that everyone loves their hometown. I hate it with all my heart until someone says to me, until someone says something bad about it and then I'm like, hold my earrings, f*** it. Like that, like, because, you know, I feel like we all have this connection to our town that like as soon as someone says something rough about it. You're like, hey. Yeah, it's like a family I had to live there for 19 (laughs) years. It ruined my life. That's none of your business. Um, But in all honesty, it was a pretty good upbringing. Like, I think it's a lot better now. I go back there and visit family and it's this like stunning kind of, you know, it's been gentrified to a certain level, but not in a problematic way, I don't think. Um, There's a lot more kind of culture going on there. When I lived there, it was pretty surfy, if you don't, if you don't want to be a teacher, a surfer, or a skater, there's not too much there for you. <laughs> and so there is a lot, but it has a history of like a lot of comedy from the '90s, like they're kind of a lot of that kind of Good News Week troupe of people. Like, really? Yeah. Do you remember kind of like Flacco and Sandman and yeah, all those? Yeah. Types? A lot of them were from Mikey Robbins ah. is from Newcastle, Silverchair. Um, where I think similar to places like Perth and Adelaide, like there are these places that are, you know, I know that Perth and Adelaide are major cities, but they're like uh, kind of because there isn't much to do. A lot of creative people start there because you got to kind of make your own fun, and then we all leave at a certain point. But I do have a lot of friends that left, and I think it's one of those places that like it's like the island in Lost, like it just sucks you back in somehow. I have so many friends that left for ten years and go to. It's a great place to raise a family, Newcastle. I feel Is that like. why you think they came back? I think so. Like it's a pretty. You know, it it was for a minute the methamphetamine capital of Australia, so that's that's calmed down now, and it's a nicer place now. But no, it is, it's it's a lovely place. It's a it's whenever I but when people say things because where are you from originally? Melbourne. Melbourne, right? I'm jealous. So you and now I think about yeah, you've got that kind of oil, like there's a there's a an easiness to your demeanour that means I grew up in a place that that had stuff. Yes, I've got to admit, like I always think I love Melbourne, and I just was in Perth and Adelaide on the weekend. And loved both of those places, but I was like, oh, I love Melbourne. It's freezing. Adelaide was pretty friggin' cold as well. Yeah. Perth had beautiful weather, but there is something about Melbourne that I do like a lot. I think it's like any if you grow up somewhere, it's a strange feeling when you meet someone as someone who grew up in a kind of small and Newcastle's not a tiny town. Like it's a metropolis in some way. It's a yeah. city, but it's definitely borderline between a city and a town. <laughs> um you grow up thinking of somewhere, like Sydney was the big smoke. Yes. Like there's always somewhere to go to. Whereas if you grow up in Melbourne, I mean, I guess if you lived out in the suburbs or something, but if you grew up in like the centre of Melbourne, you can't, you live in the big smoke. Like yeah. there's no, Europe is the big smoke. Like there's well, that's nowhere. it. I think of America as like, oh, that's, that's like New York or place. LA is bigger. Yeah. But otherwise, yes, I grew up basically central Melbourne. So. Whereas I feel like in Australia, if you grew up somewhere like Newcastle, I have friends that moved to London when we were like, you know, 19 or 20, and to me, and then they kind of went crazy there and burnt out a little bit because I think it's a bit of a, if you grew up in a small place in Australia, you need like a gateway (laughs) to get there. You can't go straight there because you're just like, Jesus, too many people here. This is crazy. Sensory overload. Yeah. So did you enjoy those years? How long were you there for? I moved out when I was 19, like, yeah, moved to Sydney when I was 19. Yeah. And I did. I loved it there. I think... But, like, I loved it there when I was a young teenager. I think as I got older, yeah, you just end up, you know, drinking passion pop in a park. Like, there's yeah. not too much to do. Uh, and But, you know, I made some of my strongest friends there. And then we all kind of moved. And I, I was – my partner grew up in Perth and a lot of his friends are still there. And he's still close friends with all of his high school friends. Really? And I'm not – like, nothing against my high school friends. I love them all. Like, but we just kind of drifted apart and I don't really see them anymore. Yes. And I think it's just the nature of my work and that kind of like, you know, every now and then we'll check up on each other. There's about four of us that we, we um, one of us will see something insane on Facebook that a bully from our high school did and we'll, we'll send it to each <laughs> other and go like, remember this guy? Our lives are better, right? Um, 
but yeah, I, it is like Newcastle is a time that I kind of, I didn't mean to, but I've kind of, like it's a very distant time and it's only 20 years ago. Like I'm, or no, less than, like I'm only 33, but it's just like, it's a, yes. I, I can't imagine living there again. I do don't you think. go back there at all? A family, yeah. I go back whenever I can and I do show, I had a weird moment where I performed, there's a theatre there called the Civic Theatre that I, it's like a nice big pretty theatre and I grew up watching people there and I did it as part of my tour this year and that was wild. I was like, oh, I'm I'm like, perform- like and there, there'll be potentially 13-year-olds watching me right now and it was like when I watched like, you know, this is too much of a jump, but like Will Anderson and Ross Noble and stuff were the shows I went to go see there and now they're, now they're watching me and that was wild. And like your whole school community that you don't chat to isn't like sitting in the audience. Yeah, yeah, boo, not <laughs> this isn't true. That is that's the fear about um because I went back and I had to change a few jokes because they they know the lies. <laughs> like all comedians lie in our acts and they know the ones that aren't true and I had to be like there was about a ten minute section about Newcastle. I definitely softened <laughs> while I was looking at it. It's like you you don't say anything insulting to someone's face. You wait no. until they leave the room. Well that's so true. It's funny as well as it like if I've ever said something on the podcast that's not like a hundred percent correct. Yeah. And if my kids have heard, they're like, Mom, that didn't happen. <laughs> don't you know kids, you are just content to me now? <laughs> don't you know? You you you're the one that was born into this podcast life. Exactly. It's so true though. It's like things can't be a hundred percent like they were, and you don't remember them no. exactly like they were. I did that like I just wrote a book, and it's just a book of essays, and it comes out on October thirty first. Um, <laughs> but it 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 really freaked me out a little bit because in stand up you just kind of say stuff, yeah. and it's out into the ether, and unless you're on TV or something, it's just kind of out there and goes away and out there and goes away. And you can fix it every night or, you know, you can change the wording of things. And But no one's really... But writing a book, I was suddenly like, oh, this is in print. And this is... And I found myself being a lot more... Confessional isn't the right word, but there were things that I would... I've never really written that much before. I never write down my stand-up anywhere properly. Um, and so writing it all out, you do kind of have these little realisations and then it's in the book and you're sending it off to an editor. And you're like, oh, that person's going to know I felt that way yes. about them in that moment now. And that's like, it was very odd, the idea of, because you hope, when I do stand up, I'm like, they weren't, they're not here. The odds of them being here is insane. But now there's like, you know, there's like a essay about, like, it's not all about this, but my male best friend in high school, I was absolutely, and a lot of queer people, I think, have this experience, but I was absolutely in love with him. But I didn't know that, but you don't know that at the time. Yes. But like, I was. Did you ever tell him before this book? No. Oh, wow. And like, Does he have to see it? You know how they have to see it? Well, I never before? name him or anything. Okay, great. But, and, and it's not like, you know, I'm not, I wasn't like besotted by him for you, but I think it's that I think a lot of queer people and, you know, straight people as well, kind of, you don't understand your feelings and I was just yeah. like kind of infatuated by him and then you're like, oh, yeah, no, that's. I was definitely just horny for him that whole time. That's what that was. And tell me, how was going to school in Newcastle? Did the people there find you funny? I always find it interesting when I talk to comedians. When was the moment where you're like, hey, I am kind of funny. I could do this properly. I was pretty desperate to be a comedian from pretty early on. I think... I might, I think I, I thought I was funny and I potentially was funny, but not very many people thought I like, I was the, I was not the class clown. I was like, I wanted to be, <laughs> I, I think I was just annoying. Like, I think there's, my view is there's like two types of comedians where, uh, you either, someone signs you up to an open mic cause they think you're funny and you go, Oh, all right. And then you become a comedian or there's the people that are from their 15 years old are like. I want to be a comedian. That's all I want to do, and I'm going to do every. And I was the latter. I was. I was like. I used to watch the galas on TV. Really? Yeah, I was obsessed with it. And I, my first gig I did when I was about 16, and just kind of started from there, and was very bad for a long time. But how do you know you about? It was just general reaction. <laughs> <laughs> People not like. I think I was unlucky. That I think everyone always knew there was something there. Like a lot of comedians really looked after me when I was a kid. Like. I started properly when I was eight. When I moved to Sydney when I was just 19, I started properly doing stand-up. But I was doing open mics in Newcastle and my parents, who were, like, incredibly responsible people, when I was, like, 16 and 17, were letting me after school get on the train. I'd go to Sydney, like, an hour and a half, two hours on the train, do a spot at, like, a bar that I was allowed to be in and sometimes not allowed to be in. 
I'd do five minutes, I'd bomb, get back on the train and come back home. Wow. And I'd do this for like years. And so, I, and then I'd be getting home at like, you know, 10 o'clock at night or something. And as long as my homework was done, they were letting That's me go to Sydney and do stand up. Kind. Yeah, very kind. And trusting. I think they knew I was just a nerd and I wasn't up to anything. Yeah, I think yeah. they were just like, oh, we'd be worried if we thought they were. <laughs> doing drugs or anything, but yes. they're just going to stand at the back of a bar and bomb in front of 40 people on a Wednesday <laughs> night and come back home. When did it start to take off for you? When did the funniness occur in you? I think late in high school, I started to, my references started to line up like with everyone. And I think my timing got, and I, I was just, I was more in charge of how, like what kind of funny I was. Yes. I think I was less just throwing shit at the wall and um, figuratively, not literally. Um, and then career-wise, like, not until I was, like, I was doing stand-up for a long time and I did, like, Raw Comedy, which is this ABC competition where you, you win, if you get to the grand final, you, uh, you perform during the Melbourne Comedy Festival in front, like, in the town hall. And I got to the grand final of that and that just kind of, things started to click. I got my little five minutes together and moved to Sydney and just started, had a lot of bad day jobs, but just never stopped like, it's worrying if ever during COVID, like, I've never had a, I've had day jobs, plenty of, like, retail and hospitality jobs. I've never had another, I've never had, like, a career job yes. other than stand-up. So if this goes bad, if I get cancelled, <laughs> I got nothing. I was on a show the other day, we were filming uh, Taskmaster, and I was, we were backstage, me and Mel Buttle and a few other comics, and we were going around the circle discussing what we think we would do if we were cancelled, yeah. if that was a real thing, and none of us really had... <laughs> I was like, oh, I guess, like a teacher, maybe. <laughs> like, like the 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 provisos were. You still have a personal life. You haven't done anything that would make your family not talk to you. Yes. Just comedy is over. You cannot perform on stage yeah. anymore. And I think I just I'd end up being like a drama teacher, but one of those like sad, oh, yeah. sad drama I had, teachers. I had two of them. Yeah, when where I was it at didn't school. quite work out. Yeah. They wanted. You knew yeah, they wanted yeah. to be actors. They never wear shoes. Yeah. You know, they're always sitting in loose clothing. And they were yeah. probably a little bit hungover. <laughs> Almost definitely. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. What I'd like to know is, mm-hmm. I've heard you talk before that you have anxiety, which we all have, oh, yeah. but you suffered from that in a in a bigger way. Yeah. How the hell do you do the job that you do with that? <laughs> like, it's I, one thing to have it, and then there's another thing to go on stage, which some people is their worst nightmare. Yeah. So I, how do you manage that? I think it kind of goes hand in hand. For a, a lot of people in comedy, a lot of people in media have it, I think, and I... My theory, I don't have any research to back this up other than my own, is that I think when you have anxiety, and I, I think similar, I'm in the process of getting a, hopefully a diagnosis for ADHD, and I think it's a similar thing. And there's a lot of people with ADHD in comedy. Like most of, watch any panel show, most of those people have a Dexy in their pocket. Um, <laughs> whether prescri- prescribed or otherwise. Um, the... Uh, it's a, you, you yearn for control, like, of a situation. Yeah. And when I'm on stage, it sounds kind of intuitive, but you have control, like, mm. and kind of all your, all the issues you have in your life kind of go away. And there's this, you know, say you're on stage for 20 minutes or an hour, for that hour, you, this is my, this is my time. <laughs> and I know what's going to happen. Yeah. Or I kind of, I can manipulate this room. By the, you know, this is by the time you're later in your career and you, are focused and know what you're doing. Um, and whereas everything else, it's like when I get, when I finish a tour, tours are great. I love touring and I, because it's like constant movement and then you finish the tour and then you have to deal with all the things you've been ignoring mm. from, you would have, the, you know, when you have a very busy time at work, yes. you kind of feel like you can. It's actually the best. Yeah. yeah. And you remove everything yeah. else. You don't worry about bills. You don't worry about anything because you're working. Yeah. And then it, it all stops. Like holidays, I think the first couple of days of a holiday is actually a fucking nightmare yeah. for most people that work in our type of industry because it's like, oh, all like the real stuff now. I've got to like... <laughs> think about it. That dinner I've been putting off <laughs> yeah. for like two weeks and the... I much prefer... I like I like working for that reason. I like not stopping because yes. I like having control in that way. So how do you manage your mental health? How do you keep it in check? Look, I mean, get back to me. Um, yeah, I mean, I, d- I don't, I don't know. I've like, I've, I've had bouts of. I go, I try and see a psych every now and then, like for a bit of a tune up. I should probably be going more often. I'm, I think my partner is probably almost my fiance is better built <laughs> to answer those questions because you know I think a lot of yes, you talk y- to you, him a bit. Yeah, yeah, 
and I think he's a lot more on top of it than I am. We both have kind of stuff. He's um, he's has bouts of um, bipolar, and and I kind of keep an eye on that. And he and I have yeah anxiety. Like I think it, he he's kind of almost accidentally in charge of managing that, and me not really knowing. Like it's it's only you know it'll be two weeks down the line. Our partners do and or just best friends, whoever is like the closest person yeah. in your life, do so much more work <laughs> than we think that they're doing. Absolutely. And like kids know more than we think that they do. And like, I think it's, I, I sometimes think people in my, in, in our position aren't always the right people to know. <laughs> like, yeah. how are you managing? I don't know. I haven't lost my mind in a while. I definitely go through little, I as I get older as well, and I'm only 33, but if old enough to, you get exhausted easier, like, mm. and I, dr- I drink a lot less than I used to, and I don't really do drugs anymore, and um, the apart from the crab ones, um, and I think the more once you take away all those stimulants, you kind of get to the nut of it a bit more, and I'm just trying to get better at like I don't know, this sounds really dumb and basic, but I joined a pool yesterday. Oh no, that's nice. Yeah, and I'm going to start going every morning and going yeah. for a swim. Like a friend of mine, Ben Law. Ryder has always said, like, he goes for a proper swim every single morning, mm. whether it's winter, whenever. Beautiful. And it, like, clears everything yes, for the day. Cathartic. And it's like that type of stuff. Like, I, I, I'm a pretty, um, I don't know, I'm a pretty basic person with that type of stuff. I try not to, you know, I, th- I would love to be exercising more. Who know, Even I was at the pool yesterday with my fiancé and I was like, I'm going to say I'm going to come here at seven o'clock every morning. I know that it's not true, but it's nice to, and I went, we went for our first swim and it was like, I was like, I feel great. And that, is it because of the swim or is it because I feel like I'm doing something? Yes. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. That kind of, sometimes just going to the gym feels better than actually going to the gym. Yeah, yeah. Just standing around looking at your phone. You're like, I did it. We're doing it. Um, I don't know. I don't know how I look after myself. I, I just, I think I... Make sleep more of a thing. These sleep are all very massive, basic. Though. Yeah. Sleep is massive. And I think no one tells you until yeah. your thirties. <laughs> no one tells yeah. you how important the sleep is. And then suddenly you have you have seven hours or eight hours and you're like, why haven't I been doing this yeah. since I was eighteen? Yesterday morning I got home from that tour and I was doing some things, like some work, and I thought, my brain could not make sense anymore. Yeah. Like I was like, I I have to stop working because my brain is mush. Yeah. And I thought, what do people do if they really live on this little amount of sleep day to day? Like no wonder it makes people go mad. No wonder politicians are f***ing nuts. Seriously. Like, genuinely. Like yeah. The, I always think my 20s were all about me staying awake as much as possible and yes. anything I could do to make that happen. And my 30s are all about anything I can do to go to sleep. Like anything <laughs> at all, like melatonin, anything. Like um, I like have, I smoke a bit of weed sometimes and whatever. Um, but like just doing things to be more restful is so... And it's, you know, the, the more... I'm very lucky that I've got a little bit more successful in the last few years. And you can kind of take the pedal off the gas a little bit in the same way, like stand up is a hustle. Yeah. And I used to, you know, when you're an open micer, you're usually on first in the show and all you want to do is be on at the end. Like you want to be the person who's that last comedian doing 40 minutes and then you become the last comedian doing 40 minutes. You're like, all I want to do is be the first five minutes in this show <laughs> so I can just go home and go to sleep. It's so true. So like every, like we, it's the, it's the grass is always greener thing, but we yearn for success and then you get it. And you're like, this is hard. <laughs> Talking about success, you had did a spot on Conan O'Brien mm. quite a few years ago. And yeah. it's so funny, when I researched you, I found that out. And just before I was researching you, I listened to Conan O'Brien's podcast. Yeah. He's such podcast. a legend. Oh, my God. It was, a, it was the one he did with Billy Corgan. I think oh, that's yeah, how, yeah, yeah. It was a really good episode. And he's a really good interviewer because mm. I remember him from years ago, but I'd kind of forgotten about yeah. him. And then and it wasn't really a thing in Australia as much. No. Like, I think the idea of Conan was a thing, but they never showed the show here, not on Foxtel or anything yeah. like that. Like, I think Letterman was more of a thing. Like, they would play it after the Channel 10 News. Firstly, how did you get that gig? And that obviously catapulted you then doing the stand-up yeah. before his shows. Talk to us about that. It was this wild thing where, so I opened for him first. I This gig had come up where he was doing a little tour of Australia and I think he might have asked around about comedians that might be good for it or his team did. 
and then and it ended up being me, um, Becky Lukov, who's this incredible um, comedian, and a guy called Steen Rathkopoulos, who's this incredible oh, comedian. Yeah, he's good. yeah. and uh, a good Greek boy. And uh, and with the three of us were all quite close friends, and so we were like, Jesus Christ! And you expect in those types of gigs, and you might have this in your work as well, where you think. You don't aim too hard. Like when you're gonna, you know, you're gonna be working with someone of that level. You're like, I'm not gonna expect. My, like, if I meet them for two seconds and yes. they're polite, that's fine. Yeah, and I'll just don't get too hungry about it. And he was incredible. Like he knew all our names, which is not that hard, but <laughs> um, but came in, spent time with us, chatted yeah. about us, uh, was really interested. There was like this big after party. And there was a room full of... It was of, an after party. It was an after. Like he did, so he did it at the State Theatre in Sydney. Yeah. And afterwards, and the gig went great. Uh, like, and then he was very funny. And then there was this after party and he found all three of us and put us all together at a table and he sat with us and for like two hours and really made time for us. Yeah. And there was a room full of people, just like big people. Yeah just standing around waiting to get time and he was more focused on us. And I think that's really... That's so kind. Yeah. And then we all got put... So Becky and I have both done his... Did the kind of final season of his show. And it was the same thing. I saw him in the hallway. And my my husband, my fiance's name is Kyron. And that's not a deeply memorable, like, name. And I saw him in the hallway. And who knows whether someone told him, but we were chatting for a bit at his show in LA and he was like, "And, and how's Kyron? And I, I fucking forget Kyron's name sometimes. <laughs> like, it's a... Um, That's very sweet. Yeah. And it's those people... There's a few people. I've been very lucky. Last year I met Eric Idle from Monty Python. Oh, I love Eric Idle. Yeah. And same thing. You expect, you know, let's, yeah. you know... Like, expect John Cleese, maybe. <laughs> like, a different energy. And he was... He's, like, in his 80s. And we did a show together at the Opera House, like there was a whole bunch of comedians on. And we found out when we got there, oh, there's a surprise. Eric Idle is going to come out at the end and we're all going to sing Always Look on the Bright Side of Life together. Oh. And it was like, Jesus <laughs> fucking Christ. <laughs> we all just wanted to call our dads. Um, and uh, we did that. And same thing, we just were expecting him to leave. But he talked to us for an hour, about 10 of us, and then... There was an after party, another after party. There are not these many, there's not very many after parties in comedy. I was going to say, I didn't think it's there was real, like a, an after it's party a real thing. zany. Um, we did the, did the show, chatted for an hour and he said, well, I'll see you guys at the after party. And this is like midnight by this point. And we were like, okay, 85 year old man. Sure. We'll see you at the after party. Rove McManus was there and he was like, I've used this before. I, he's not coming back. Like, this is how you get out of situations. Get to the after party. At 1.30 in the morning, Eric Idle rocks up. Wow. And, like, sits with us for another two hours and, like, chats with everyone. And I don't know, it just, it, it's hard to stay, I'm kind of rambling, but it's, it's really hard to stay relevant in this job. Mm. And I think to be able to do that, Conan's done it, someone like Eric Idle has done it, to not be, I don't know, to not be kind of, one, ashamed of the work that you've done before, be happy to talk about it, while also be constantly producing new work. Mm. It's like, you know, the, uh, People seem to stay young when there's like kids around, like you know yes. what I mean. Like like grandparents, as soon as the grandchild is yes. born, they kind of revitalize again. And I think the comics that understand that and the entertainers that understand that, like, stay around, stay relevant, instead of shutting yourself off and becoming a recluse and kind of angry at an industry yeah. that doesn't understand you anymore. And it's like, no, you don't understand the industry anymore. Anyways, do you get nervous for anything like going on Conan show? Was that nerve wracking? The show was yeah yeah the the his TV show yeah. was yes very nerve wracking because it was my kind of American yeah. debut and how's that it was like I got four minutes to do it and it goes out that night and it was terrifying and it's and no one had told me that he would be sitting there like <laughs> like you well, kind like of had this audience. little stage and and Conan and his sidekick Andy Richter were just standing there oh. and and it was just so you're just doing your stand up <laughs> and if you watch there's a clip of it on YouTube I look a bit. Manic. Like, it's not my best set in the world. And it did fine. I have a lot of gratitude for that because it led to... I got an agent in America because of that spot and then I got a Netflix special and then I, RuPaul saw me on that Netflix special and then he booked me for the show and that's kind of led Jesus. me to do a lot of other things. And then tell us about you were booked to go on I'm a Celebrity, Get Me oh, Out yeah. of Here. How did they bump you? 
I still don't <laughs> know. Like, I didn't know that that was allowed. Well, turns out, like, I guess we didn't look at the contract good enough. Um, no, I think it was. I never know what happened. I know that I got booked to do it. And I guess it was like five years ago. I guess I, I've just, I just started talking about it last year. <laughs> um, I got booked to do it and kept it a secret. Got all the needles. Like I was going to South Africa. Yeah. I got all the needles. I got all really? the. I did a psych test. Did I'd, you get like the clothes and stuff? No. I, and that was the last bit. I like in two weeks from I was, flights were booked. Like they were in my Quantasap yeah. thing going to South Africa. And, you know, you keep it a secret for six months and you sign a lot of paperwork and you do a psych test and you do all this stuff and you prepare. We cancelled a tour. There was all these kind of things and you kind of got to keep it. Well, I remember it kind of not hurting my feelings, but, you know, I was not famous. I feel like those shows, they always book. There's like a few people that have been famous. Yeah. There's who, a few yeah. people that kind of are famous. And then there's like one or two people that you're like, who is that? <laughs> That's always a who yeah. is that. Who is that there? <laughs> and you watch the kind of famous people conversationally try and work out who this person is. Yeah. And I think I was definitely that. I would have been the kind of, the show makes you famous, yeah. which it seems counterproductive to me. Um, anyways. I got an advice. The one person I told in my life was um, a friend of mine who'd been on the show, early in the show, and he was like, um, you know, put on a little bit of weight if you want because you're going to lose yes. a lot in there. Like just, uh, you know, I changed things. Like <laughs> I changed my so life. So did you put on weight? Not to- much, but like <laughs> enough that enough that I wouldn't look. I'm, I've always been a pretty skinny person, enough that by the end of the show I wasn't like, Reese is dead. Reese passed away in there. Um, but, you know, you get yourself psyched up for it. You... And you also, you know, I've got to say, like money, the, the money was kind of bonkers for where I was at the time. Yeah, like, yeah, they throw it at you. Yeah, yeah. And, and so you start to, like, think in your life, like, oh, in, in six weeks' time, I'm going to be more famous in Australia, I'm going to have a bunch of money, I'm going to be able to tour bigger rooms. It's, this is going to change. Yes. My life is about to change. And then, um, <laughs> yeah, two weeks out, I just got a call from my agent and she was, like, very upset. And was like, they've bumped you and I don't know, we can't do anything about it. We'll, we might be able to get a little bit of money out of them, but I, I don't have an explanation for you. I've tried. There's nothing. They've bumped you. I reckon it was for Tomic. It was the year that Tomic went in. The tennis player. Yeah. And he was like grumpy in there. I was like, at least I would have been funny. Um, and I got, yeah, really, I'm annoyed at myself in retrospect how upset I was about it. I think because I'd mentally invested a lot into it. Yes. And kind of thought. You know, I, I, the way that I think about this industry now is, like, you're not promised anything. Like, I think anytime someone says, oh, I should have gotten that, it's like, no, you you, you could have gotten that. Mm. Like, you, we're not owed anything in this industry. Like, I don't think... I know so many people that are much funnier than me <laughs> that are not doing as well as I am. And I know plenty of people that are doing better than me that are not as funny as me. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I don't think we deserve... Like, there's people that you can tell kind of like, I should have had that. I would have done that better. And that's just not true necessarily. Like, um, And it, I think that kind of taught me that a little bit because... And I'm not a kind of... It was serendipitous, I think. I'm not one of those kind of, the you know, the universe finds a way type of people. I'm not particularly spiritual. But yeah. because of that, I did Conan. Like, I would have been... Because I got can- yes. like can- cancelled off the show, I got booked. Yeah, the Conan, other doors opened for you, and that changed. Like, and I think that. And if we look at the caliber of what you've done, yeah, compared I to going yeah. on, I'm a celebrity. I didn't have get to me out of eat here. a pig's asshole yeah. in a in a jungle. I think you know? it all worked out well for you. Yeah, and totally. But it did. It just. I remember being so furious, and then when the show started, because yeah, it was life changing money. We were my partner and I were pretty broke at the time, and then you start seeing posters go like billboards go yeah. up, and you're like, fuck. <laughs> That could have been made like that. Even if I got two weeks in, I'd have like a like a lot of a lot of money, not as much as Shane Warne, but a lot of money. Then obviously those other doors opened. Did mm. they come back? Have they come back since I'm a celebrity? To I think ask they you asked the next year. Like, said, no. said, yeah, well, I mean, kind of like because they said, yeah, did they? Yeah, no, they asked the next year. I don't know if they asked again. I think once I've started talking about it. But I, don't, I don't know if I'll be getting an offer anytime <laughs> soon. And I don't, like, begrudge anyone that does it. Like, it's totally, you know, and I'd be an idiot. I, I, I work on a competition reality show. Like, it's yeah. a completely valid thing to do. And, like, why wouldn't you? But it just made me really angry that they they promised me this thing and I didn't get it. And that made me angry and it made me realise, yeah, there's no, 
There's no promises. There's no... Uh, it's good to know contractually why, like, your agent, I suppose she'd go over or he would go over that with a fine-tooth comb yeah. next time to make sure that I think it was some nutty, some nutty, like, way around it. Like, because my agent, she's a very good at contracts. Yeah. And I think, and she was just like, they can't, they've got this one airtight thing that they don't... And, you know, they don't move on things and you're the least famous person on yeah, the show and yeah, blah, blah, so, blah, yeah, blah, yeah. blah. But good on them, you know? Good on them. Obviously, RuPaul's Drag Race. RuPaul's Drag Race, Down Under. Yeah, Down Under, season three. Yeah. That must be an amazing experience for you. It's pretty fun. I get to, like, it's the most carefree job I get to do all year. Like, genuinely, I love, it's my favourite thing because I love drag. is something I'm really passionate about. Um, it's something I've kind of grown up watching and, but you know, I've been going to drag shows since I was, like, 17 and it's just my favourite thing. I think it's one of our, especially in Australia and New Zealand, it's one of our great, we're a really camp country. Yeah. And it's kind of in our blood, whether we like it or not. <laughs> like, whether you take camp as a queer thing or not. But, you know, Crocodile Dundee's pretty bloody camp. And yes. like You know what I mean? Like, yeah. we, we come from this place of campness and, and our drag in Australia is a very particular thing and I love being even a very small part of showing that to the rest of the world, which sounds like a very press thing to say, but I genuinely mean that. The great part of it is that I get to sit next to RuPaul for three uh, weeks of the year. How is that? It's wild. Yeah. It's never, and I hope it's never lost on me. Like, he's great, he's funny, he's everything you want him to be. He's, I think people think he's some insane, reclusive, bonkers person, and he's not. He's really funny He's really interested in your life. He's really... Michelle Visage and I have become quite close friends. Like, we text pretty often. It's wild. This season, like, they released all the guest stars that we had this year. Like, Adam Lambert was... Like, and I yeah, sit I next to... Adam and then Lambert. I'm, like, sitting next to this person. This wild thing happened this year where the Backstreet Boys were touring. We film in Auckland and New yeah. Zealand. The Backstreet Boys were touring. And AJ from the Backstreet Boys, who... I'm sorry, everyone, is not on the... He's not in the season, but he came to visit the set. Just for fun. Because he knows Rue. Oh, wow. And it was the day that Adam Lambert was there, and I was sitting on the panel, and in between shots, AJ from the Backstreet Boys, <laughs> Adam Lambert and RuPaul and Michelle are just chatting. And I don't I don't have any in that conversation. <laughs> I don't... They were literally at one point talking about helicopters. And I was like, I don't, I don't have a helicopter. I can't talk to you guys about this. And then we all went to the Backstreet Boys together. Oh, how was that? Wild. I like, like the Backstreet Boys. I, it was great. Um, I get the feeling, I don't know if this is the wrong thing to say, who's the long-haired one? One is of them has like long hair. Is that like a Carter or one of them? I don't know. Yeah. Oh, there's a Carter in there. When it, there's a long, They all had something to say. Like the show went for like two and a half hours. Yeah. They have a lot of songs, it yeah, turns out. Yeah, yeah. Um, they're all singing and stuff. They all get a moment to talk, except for the guy with long hair. He did. I think his name's Kevin, maybe. <laughs> he was Why not, did he, he did talk? Not, I don't know. I looked it up. He's a... Um, Pretty full-on fundamentalist Christian. Maybe they're like, oh, when Kevin chats, uh, he starts talking about purity rings and we're not sure if that's the Backstreet Boy vibe. But it was. They were good. They can all still dance. How old would they be now? Like early 80s. <laughs> um, I don't know. Like, I don't know. I guess 40s. Like, not old. Yeah. But, you know, I've joined a pool because my knees hurt <laughs> and I'm yes. only 33 yeah. and they're like doing... Like flip, flips stuff. and stuff and doing a full tour. Yeah. It was wild. But sitting, like I was sitting next to Rue watching the Backstreet Boys. Wild. How does the boy from Newcastle, how do you reflect on that and go, I've come from Newcastle, which is an amazing place, yeah. but obviously smaller, and now I'm sitting with all these phenomenal people. It's like... Do you go like, thank you? Like, I yeah. know you said you're not spiritual, but is there a time where you just go like, uh, thanks? I, I try my absolute hardest not to take it for granted, like yeah. genuinely. Like, and I, I think that sounds a bit like, of course you don't, but I think it's really easy in our jobs to start taking things mm. for granted. We all know people that just start taking, and the moment that you take it for granted is the moment it starts to slip away and that's when you get angry and bitter yes. about it not being there anymore. Um, like, I think even my job on the show, for lack of a better term, I'm like a conduit for the audience. So I'm never not trying to enjoy myself on Drag Race because we're there to have to make a fun, lighthearted, silly show that's based around a really important community in my life. 
and I always try and, you know, I, I call myself the Paula Abdul of the group, <laughs> where, you know, like... Michelle and Rue were kind of the more, not Simon Cowell, like they're not harsh, but they're looking, yeah. they're critiquing, they're looking at the looks and they're doing this. Whereas I'm there as a lover of drag to look for, and as a performer, I've been a performer for almost two decades to be like, I don't think that was a genuine thing or I don't think, this is what I think you could do better, but yeah. I'm never going to be like, that waist isn't right and your eyes should be different and blah, blah, because who the f*** am I? Yes. I'm there to like be thrilled at the fact that I get to watch some queens do some incredible work. How was it growing up or when you came out gay in Newcastle? Was it the supportive community? Yeah. I'm lucky that I went to a theatre school in Newcastle called the Hunter School of Performing Arts, or we were known in the town to the other schools as the Hunter School of Puffs and Tarts. That's how we were known. <laughs> um, and they oh. weren't they weren't wrong. Um, the So, you know, I think it was okay there. I still, I don't think, I was never really bullied because I was queer. I think I was bullied for other reasons. Like, I was still bullied pretty badly, but I think I was just because I was annoying. Uh, my parents, I'm very lucky, and this is another thing I try not to take for granted, my parents were deeply supportive from the get-go yeah. and always have been, and I'm, like, insanely lucky to have that. Like, there was no misunderstanding or worry about it. They were like, yep, yeah, great, good for you. And I think that's pretty incredible. Yes. Um, and, yeah, it was Newcastle, like... You know, people, I'd get people pretty regularly because I've always kind of looked and sounded like I've been dyeing my hair red for a long time, like this colour. Like I, I was pretty pretty openly queer and there was definitely like people driving in their Nissan Skylines, driving past calling me a faggot from their cars and that kind of <laughs> stuff like that, you know. Yeah. But in Does some that towns that... you? Yeah. I mean, I think the grim thing is no, like because it happens so often. Like yeah, I think, yeah. and I think that's quite a... Mm. I wouldn't call it tragic because I got off quite easy as far as some people got and what some people still get. Um, but it's just after a while you're like, oh, yeah, that's happening. Like it, do- it, doesn't, yes. it doesn't make you sad or angry. It's just kind of there. Yeah. And I think things are getting better slowly. But then, you know, with drag bands and drag story time, like it, that's not an attack necessarily on only drag queens. That's an attack on queer people and it's like very interesting to see it kind of happening again you've got like a really cool look thank you y- you know you've got the red would you call it yeah, yeah red yeah, hair kind of burgundy, and, I yeah, guess, yeah yeah it's like a really sharp look the hair's always nicely like pulled back yeah is that it's marketing <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. how do you come up with that kind of i i uh i wear makeup on stage because i used to have very bad skin and just started wearing it and i started wearing suits because i just like i there was a, when I was about 20, there was, and I'm, I'm not ashamed of this, but there was a pro, I was on a lot of lineup shows that would have like 20 comedians on it. Yes. And at that time, there, it was a lot of straight white guys. And I thought, oh, I'm going to have bright hair. I'm gonna, I used to have quite big hair. I'm going to have big hair. I'm going to wear bright suits. And even if you don't find me funny, you will remember me in this lineup of. Smart. Yeah, I think it, it was a little bit sociopathic. <laughs> But um, but yeah, and so so I did that, and um, it went all right, I guess. Well, that's I suppose how everyone firstly remembers you, and then it's like, okay, he's a great comedian as yeah. well. Yeah, I wanted to be not remembered as the gay one. I wanted to be remembered as like the redhead one, or the like, because I think the you know I still get jo- Joel Creasy is my best friend, and we still oh, yeah, laugh you look about similar a little bit. We have a similar face, yeah. but like. We we often think of ourselves as um you know that movie Death Becomes Her with Goldie Horn and Meryl <laughs> Streep in it because he's blonde and I have red hair yeah. that that will be us when we're like in our seventies. We still get occasionally confused for each other by people and we look alike I understand but we make very different work and we look different enough like yes. it's this kind of funny thing where people still slam queer comedians or female comedians yeah. or comedians of color slam together. It's like. You know, it's like Nazim Hussain and Walid Ali get yeah. tagged in the same photos. <laughs> really? All the, time. all the time. You're joking. All the time. Like Daily Mail, it happens all the time. Oh, yeah. God. And, the, you know, it's just lazy interning probably, but it's just, yeah, wild stuff. Have you ever had any, like, horror moments when you've been doing stand-up or anything, like the crowd or anything happen that you're like, oh, not, God? Not like... We've all had really shit gigs, yeah. like really like silent gigs and I've had hecklers and stuff, but not really, you know, 
I perform in cruise ships at times. I've performed oh, on cruise ships. ships and that type oh. of thing. Like, But not... No, I've been lucky, I think... I think your brain does something at a certain point after you've been doing it for 15 years where you just <laughs> delete the worst ones. Yes, like, yes. You know, I probably back there I've got some horror show stories, but nothing that springs to mind. It's like, oh, remember when that happened? I, op- I once opened for Tina Arena, which is a Tina strange- Arena? I know. Tina Arena. And who's lovely. Like, I, um, I opened for once at the Corner Hotel here in Melbourne where we're recording, and, and that went great. And then I opened for her at the State Theatre in Sydney. It's a weird match. Yes. Yes, it is. I agree. <laughs> um, and she was very nice to me. And I, I get the feeling, this is my theory on it, this is about not 10 years ago but maybe like seven or eight years ago, uh, I get the theory she had an, or someone in her record company had a thought that was like, you know back in the day when comedians would open for musicians and musicians would open, like Vegas kind of style? Yes. What if we had a comedian open for Tina? <laughs> and they were like, Tina Arena? You're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't people just want to hear Chain? Yeah, yeah, we'll get a comedian. I got booked to do 35 minutes before her, which is too long. I was going to say, that's like a significant amount of time for a like comedian. What a, that's what like a usual like music support act would yeah. do. Because if you think about it, that's like probably... Six or seven songs with a yes. bit of banter for a comedian. That is a long time. Like 20 minutes is what you'd yeah. expect. It went fine. This is, actually, it must have been so long ago that I, I had a lot of Tony Abbott material. I was very... Tony Abbott. I had a lot of not... I, I didn't love Tony Abbott at the time. And so... And he I think he was the PM at the time, maybe. Um, And so that's how long ago it was. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Open for him. Open. Did not open for him. <laughs> open for Tony. That was a different night. That was a different kind of show. Open for Tina at the corner. That went great. Open for her at the State Theatre. Different audience. Mm. Different type of audience. People are turning up. At the corner, people are walking in to get to the front when I'm on. That's all fine. At the State, people are walking in in like ball gowns to watch Tina Arena. Like it was a lot more yes. upmarkety. Turns out Scott Morrison, Julie Bishop <gasps> and someone else... Um, maybe Greg Hunt or someone, was up in the box and I had about 15 minutes about how much of an asshole I thought Tony Abbott was yeah. and, and the audience was like kind of semi-applauding but not really, like it was pretty much not 35 minutes hands, of not dead. Hands. Yeah, they yes. were like clapping like, um, like Nicole Kidman at the Oscars. <laughs> yeah. um, it was pretty dead silent for 35 minutes as I bombed and, and then brought out Tina Arena. How did she like it? She was all right we, and she still... She follows me on Insta. We've seen each other a few times around. Does she like your post? Yeah. Okay, that's right. It's all right then. Every now and then she'll comment under it and it's just like... she's fine. She's She's fine then. She's a great one. So tell me, when you reflect on, you know, Newcastle and everything that you learnt there and your time there, what do you believe is some of the greatest things that you then now take with you? I wish I had appreciated Newcastle more when I was there for mm. what it was. I think I was very angry at it for a while. And now when I'm there, and like, like what I said at the start, we all get angry at our hometowns. But I think the way that I treat things now, even like I'm, I'm trying at the moment, this is going to sound off topic, but I'll try and... I'm trying at the moment to get better at appreciating. Like even you go and see a shit movie, don't be angry at the shit movie because a lot of people worked real hard on it. And like, yes. just not hate some, not hating something for the sake of hating something yeah. because it's interesting to hate something. Like at the moment, at the time of recording this, like Oppenheimer and Barbie and stuff around, and I've read some reviews that are just like going Barbie the movie, and like giving it like one or two stars. It's like it's so interesting that it has got almost universal acclaim, and then and they like want top it. selling film at the moment yeah. in Australia, and it's like, but it didn't quite hit the mark for me, so I'm going to give it two stars. And it's like just trying to appreciate art and things a little bit better, yeah, and try and see what they were trying to do as opposed to. And I think I, I've gotten to that point of view from doing things like Drag Race and people getting very furious at kind of it not being what they exactly want it to be, and realizing that oh, kind of. I mean, I realise I'm calling drag race art at the moment, but <laughs> knowing that art is not always what you yes. need it, like want it to be, it's what you yeah. kind of need it to be. And I think I should have appreciated Newcastle in that way. I realise that's a weird long bow. No, but like, that makes sense. Yeah, trying to, again, not a spiritual person, but trying to like live in the moment a little bit more and maybe be le- less cynical. Even the fact that I keep saying I'm not a spiritual person, as if that's the opposite of cynicism yes. or something, but it's not. It's like 
it's just yeah I, I just want to appreciate things a little bit more because I, I I'm again I'm only 33 but it's been quite quick like it's I remember being like 20 and that was 13 years ago and that's wild your rise has been I mean you've been doing comedy for a long time but yeah. then the opportunities kind of came and there must be some as I said like gratitude to the oh, fact that f- yeah that's a pretty cool life I really I try and appreciate it. And there are times that I absolutely fail at that and I get grumpy about things not moving fast enough or something. Yeah. But, you know, I'm so lucky. I have so many friends of mine that are older than me and it hasn't quite worked out yet. And that's not to say it won't, but it's like just I'm, I'm, I try and, yeah, have a lot of gratitude for what's happening right now as opposed to what could have been if that had have happened differently yeah. or that kind of like not trying to... Yeah, and I think that's almost a trying to be anti-anxious. Yeah. Because <laughs> that's what anxious is, is like you, but what if Worried that happens and then future. that happens and yeah. then what if that happens? And it's like, no, just work on today and tomorrow and then the rest will kind of work itself out, I think. What's something that you wish for yourself? Like a hundred grand? No, um, <laughs> that would nice. uh, that'd, that'd get me out of a spot. Um, <laughs> what do I wish for myself? I think... Staying, I'm pretty happy at the moment and I'm pretty content with things. There are, of course, little tiny things that can always be a bit better and stuff, but this is a very weird niche one, but I hope for myself that I need to get better at being a more present friend. Does that sound like, and I think... Like do friends talk to you and you're scrolling your phone? Yeah. Yeah. Like that sort of thing and like just replying to shit and like not ignoring texts and not, and like just, it's a very weird, you know, I realise you were probably asking that in like, what would you like for your life to be better? (laughs) No, no, that's, uh, every answer's a good answer. I want to be more present in that way in my friends and and my family's life. Like, you know, just talk to my parents more and not, Stop. I think I take a lot of things for granted still, and I'm trying to get out of doing that. Yes. What's the best advice that you've ever been given? Make a loose plan. This is like more kind of stand-up advice, yeah. but I think it's a pretty good... Um, but try and be as nimble as possible. Like, you know, when I do stand-up, I make a... I'm going to start here, I'm going to finish here. Yeah. And whatever bits I remember in between work out. But if something happens in the crowd that's, like, good, jump on it. And yes. if it's going to take you off... Your planned out set that don't they don't know what they didn't have so don't worry about it and I think that's kind of good life advice potentially as well mm. of like you know don't have, so a, have a plan ways. of where you're yeah. going but if something better comes up jump on it yeah. because you're not going to notice that that didn't happen over yeah. there. What's your greatest hope for society today? Like a hundred grand for everyone. <laughs> um, oh look. There's never going to be true peace, <laughs> so I think we give up on that. Um, no, the I think a bit this is very vague, but a bit more just listening. Just yes. listen, everyone. Yeah. Just listen. Stop shouting and listen, because mm. I think that would. I think the kind of you know we're in this big moment of right and left and alt right and kind of alt left. We also need to admit to ourselves there is an alt left, um, but uh, and just. So, so often people agree <laughs> on stuff like the often you kind of see especially kind of within I'm talking within politics but a lot of centrist politics they they have exactly the same point of view but they mm. kind of you see it a lot in Australian politics of like they get real nitpicky and kind of you know when you're having an, an irrational argument with someone yes and it's becoming less and less about what you're actually arguing about it's becoming like well in that sentence you said that thing yeah and that gets so frustrating and so bullshit and you're not talking about the big things. Um, you know, like I keep coming back to it, but in the States, things like the drag bans and all that kind of stuff is just a distraction so they don't have to talk about gun control. Mm. And I think you've actually given the... And things like The Voice in Australia, like there's so much of this bickering about minor things when there are major things like The Voice and, and these huge kind of momentous things that could be happening and we're just bickering about little tiny things. And so just li- uh, listen to each other, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Listen and be kind. Yeah. That would be a good start. Yeah, which I feel like is, should be everyone's advice. Yeah. But I was having a conversation with someone the other day about how we we think people are really funny who say, like, I'm just, I'm just being honest, and they're actually being incredibly cruel. Yes. Yeah. 
It's like, I'm just, I've noticed I'm just a, that. I'm just a truth teller. I'm just telling you the truth. It's like, no, you're just being kind of a dick. Yeah. You're just being a dick. And so maybe that's my hope for the future. Stop being dicks. Yes. It's just that simple, really. Yeah. I know. Just think about what you're going to say before you say it. Yeah. Be authentic. I'm a total... Totally. You know, but don't upset people in the same way. Yeah, don't be authentic to the point of cruelty. <laughs> yes, exactly. What is a life of greatness to you? Oh, um, I'm really trying to think of the maths of a joke about giving someone 100 grand. Um, <laughs> what is a life of greatness? I think it is a some finding some middle ground between a life of freedom, like you feel like you can potentially do anything and go anywhere, um, with not at the expense of others. Does that kind of make sense? Yes. Like great wealth, both both financially and mentally <laughs> yeah. and spiritually, whatever that means, um, but with a lot of accountability. I think you can't really live very well forever without any kind of accountability. Yes. Does that make sense? Yes. And I think that maybe that maybe that is my living living with accountability, I think, is maybe living with greatness. Because yes. if you don't have much to be accountable for, then you're doing great. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I know what you mean. Yeah. Yes. I feel like that wasn't a... See, this is what I mean. I'm really good at... Um, I can talk funny and I can talk bullshit, but as soon as I have to be like <laughs> earnest and real about something, I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> we talked at the start about how I'm not very articulate and then it, it's in moments like this, I'm like, I don't know. Um, don't be shit, I guess. That's a life of greatness. Anyway, good luck, everyone. <laughs> Buy the book. Bye. <laughs> Reese Nicholson, you are a hilarious character and thank you so much <laughs> for the very in-depth and funny conversation we covered today. Stuff. We also covered we covered a lot, but we also covered like very little at the same time. <laughs> yes. I feel like that's the perfect type of exactly. podcast. Exactly. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Your Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my manifestation course and meditations, head to the shop tab at saragrimberg.com or this week's episode show notes to find a link. If you love what you heard, we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. Listener.